Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning. Thank you. One person say good morning back. Y'all need to drink the coffee, apparently. Uh, It's good to see all of you on this summer, warm summer morning. Um, I'm excited to introduce to you uh, our friend, Hannah Tom. Uh, Hannah uh, and I met somewhere, we're trying to figure it out, seven, eight, nine years ago, and uh, when she was a student at Denver Seminary. And um, she was also on our staff as a pastoral resident years ago, and uh, that's when we as a church really got to know her and heard about her passion uh, for pastoring, for leading, for serving, and for preaching. And so we are thrilled to have her here this morning to speak to us about the Lord's Prayer. Would you welcome to the platform with me, Hannah Tom. Good morning, DCC. I am likewise thrilled to be with you um, as we continue to talk about the Lord's Prayer this morning. Now, if you've been with us throughout July, this is when we take what's called a teaching break, um, which essentially means that Michael takes a teaching break to plan for the upcoming year. Um, What what becomes really interesting about this time is we invite um, some visitors and some friends of DCC to come in and teach on their perspective of a passage. And as I've been listening to all the different folks who have come in and taught on the Lord's Prayer, I have been reminded why our perspectives are so important. Every person who has come in has taught us something different about this same passage. Uh, Nick kind of joked last week that you have this sort of nervousness when you're getting ready to preach a sermon that everybody has preached on the same passage for the last month, that you might say the same thing. But what's interesting is as you listen to all these different sermons, there's been a unique perspective from every single person. And it just reminds me of the importance of the church, that we don't study the Bible in isolation by ourselves, but that we take into consideration our brothers, our sisters, our siblings in Christ, who are reading these same passages and learning about this same God alongside us. So with that, if you would, um, we're going to open up to Matthew 6. We'll be reading uh, verses 5 through 15. The words are going to come up on the screen behind me. And when you pray, 
Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So as I read this text, there's two words that for me change absolutely everything about prayer. Before we get into what these two words are, I want to look a little bit at the context in which we're reading this. We read this from the Gospel of Matthew. Now, what's interesting about Matthew to me is he wrote this Gospel roughly 50 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew has a really clear intention in writing his Gospel. Matthew's goal is to write to his fellow Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah that they have been waiting for all along. Now, Matthew's faced with a little bit of an uphill battle here. Because if you'll remember, what the Jews expected from the Messiah was that he would be a new Moses. The Messiah was going to deliver the Jews from their oppressors, in this case, Rome. The Messiah was also going to be a new David. He was going to set up the Israelite kingdom, only the Messiah wasn't just going to be a new Moses and a new David. He was going to be a better Moses and a better David because this kingdom that the Messiah was going to set up was going to last forever. On top of that, roughly 10 to 20 years before Matthew sits down and pens these words, the temple is destroyed after a Jewish revolt. So if I'm a Jewish person and I am reading these words in Matthew where Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I might have come to realize that the kingdom wasn't what I expected it to be. The kingdom of God, the king of Israel, uh, being in power like I had anticipated the Messiah was going to bring wasn't the reality I was living it would have felt disappointing. The kingdom of God hadn't come. The kingdom of Israel hadn't come. The kingdom of Rome had come. And if we look a little bit at the text of what's going on here, I think what's interesting is we find this prayer in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount stretches from chapters 5 to 7 of the book of Matthew. Um, and scholars debate whether the Sermon on the Mount is an actual sermon in which Jesus went up on the mountainside and taught his disciples and anybody else in earshot, 
Or if the Sermon on the Mount is sort of like a greatest hits or Cliff Notes version of Jesus' teachings, which this would have been common for great rabbis of the day. In either case, whether this is Jesus' greatest hits or whether this is an actual sermon, both Jesus and Matthew put right at the center of this sermon this prayer. So either there's something central about this prayer to the gospel itself, or there's something central about this prayer to Jesus' most popular teaching ever. That should catch our attention. And as I think about this, I think about another audience. I think about the audience that was sitting at Jesus' feet. You see, I mentioned that there's two words that catch my attention. Some of you all might have heard these words as we read the text this morning. Because Jesus repeats these words six times throughout those ten verses. Those words are our Father or the Father. And if I was one of the Jews sitting at Jesus' feet, I might have thought about the first time that God was ever referred to as the father of the Israelite nation. Now, the first time we ever see God referred to as father is actually found in Exodus 4. If you'll recall the book of Exodus, the story is basically that the Israelites have been in captivity and slavery to the Egyptians for 400 years. They cry out to God in their captivity, and God sends a man named Moses. In chapter 4, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, Israel is the firstborn son of God. You must let them go so that they can go worship their God, Yahweh. And if you'll remember the story, Pharaoh does not willingly let the Israelites go, but God delivers Israel. So if I am one of Jesus' first listeners sitting at his feet, and he calls God by the title Father and tells us to pray to our Father in heaven, I might have been thinking about the God who delivers. Jesus goes on and he tells us to pray, hallowed be thy name. Now, for you and I, this is kind of an awkward phrase. I've always thought of this phrase as sort of like heaping up like glory to God, like, God, you're so great. Thanks so much for everything you're doing. Um, This phrase is actually in what we call the divine passive. This phrase is not us stroking God's ego or telling God how wonderful he is. This phrase is beckoning God to act. This is a phrase about God's action. So when Jesus prays to our Father in heaven, the God who delivers, and he says, hallowed be thy name, if I'm one of Jesus' earliest listeners, I hear a battle cry. I hear him beckoning God for a new exodus. I hear him saying, God, don't you see our oppression? Don't you see? And as I think about these two audiences, I can't help but think about the now but not yet nature of the gospel. The reality that the finished work of the gospel is what Jesus did on the cross for us. And yet, we wait to experience the fulfillment, the fullness of the good news of who Jesus is. On reflecting on this idea, 
um, N.T. Wright in, in what he refers to as the full, uh, the whole world exodus from the, or the whole cosmos exodus from slavery, um, he says this. We'll see if it, oh, it did come up, okay. That apparent confusion, that low overlap of the first and second advents is actually what Christianity is all about. Celebrating the decisive victory of God and Jesus Christ over Pharaoh and the Red Sea, over sin and death, and looking for and working for and longing for and praying for the full implementation of that decisive victory. Every Eucharist catches exactly this tension. As often as you break bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you announce the death of our Lord until he comes. We come for our daily and heavenly bread. We come for our daily and final forgiveness. We come for our daily and ultimate deliverance. We come to celebrate God's kingdom now and pray for it soon. That is what we mean when we call God Father. And as I think about this, part of me, um, the part that, that's probably a little bit more saved, uh, vibrates with the enthusiasm that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word over my life. I will be delivered and so will you. I don't know if that will be on this side of heaven or on the other side of heaven, but I know that my God delivers. The other side of me, the maybe a little bit less saved, I'm going to call it the not yet part of me, thinks, why do I pray at all? Jesus said himself, God knows what I need. God sees my suffering. Why do I pray? As I reflected on this, and for those of you who know me personally, you know my life has been filled with a lot of prayer in the last couple of years. You see, in 2020, in January, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. In September of 2021, my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer. In December of 2021, I lost one of my best friends to alcoholism. And in February of 2022, my 34-year-old sister was diagnosed with a rare cancerous brain tumor. When they operated on her brain tumor, she lost 13 liters of blood, and they told us that she had a 50-50 chance of survival. She would go on to spend 10 additional months in the ICU. She would have nine additional brain surgeries, and she would contract two very serious infections, the lesser of which was actually meningitis. So I prayed a lot. I prayed endlessly. And sometimes, it just felt like, why? I felt apathetic towards prayer. When I read about Matthew's readers hearing this story, I feel that disappointment. And then the Holy Spirit spoke to me about prayer in the most unusual of places. At the time, I was teaching through the book of Genesis. Now, I love Genesis. I think it is a fascinating book of the Bible. But I give the caveat that there's a lot of work to peeling back the history of Genesis, to understanding what's really going on here. 
I always liken this to uh, studying Shakespeare in high school because I was told that Shakespeare is funny. Um, I was also told he's one of the greatest playwrights in history. Uh, however, being close to 500 years removed from Shakespeare wasn't that funny. Didn't really get the appeal, all right? But as you dig into the context, you start to understand. You start to understand the world that he's coming from, and that's the same thing we have to do when we study the book of Genesis, which is not 500 years removed from us, it's more than 5,000 years removed from us. So as I'm getting ready uh, to teach through Genesis, or I'm actively teaching through Genesis, I come to Genesis 6. And I'm going to be real honest, everything in me wanted to skip this story. Genesis 6 is a story of the flood. And if you'll recall, the story goes something like this. Um, God looks down from heaven. He sees how corrupt uh, humanity has become. He sees that his servant Noah is, is a righteous servant. And so God decides he's going to flood the whole earth, but he's going to start over his created work with Noah. And that's the bones of it without peeling back our history. Maybe against my better judgment, I decided to teach on this passage anyways, despite the fact that I felt like I didn't know what my audience was going to get out of it. And as I started to peel back the layers of history, I realized that there's actually over 200 flood narratives in the ancient world. Now, as I was preparing to teach, I took those narratives which were closest to Israel. So I took what's called Gilgamesh Epic, which was written by the Babylonians. I took Atrahasis, and I took the Sumerian creation story, which also uh, includes a flood narrative in it. And I started to compare these stories side by side. And it's interesting because there's a lot of overlap in these stories. All of these stories contain some kind of giant flood uh, narrative. They all have some sort of Noah-like character that the gods decide to spare for whatever reason. Um, and they all, the gods are just very uh, involved in each of these stories. And that was interesting. But what was more interesting than what they had in common was the ways that these texts differed. So for the Babylonians, when they ask why the gods have sent a flood, the answer is because the storm god Enlil decided to. There is no real reason why he's flooding the earth. And in Atrahasis and in the Sumerian creation story, the humans have become too noisy. They're very annoying. In one of these narratives, one of the gods is trying to sleep and he can't get some sleep. So the obvious answer or obvious solution is to flood the earth and wipe out the humans. But in Genesis, we see this, in Genesis 6, 5 and 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth and that every inclination and thought of the human heart was evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Now, Remember, we have to peel back the layers of history. So before you get concerned, hear me. That first verse, chapter 5, where it talks about the wickedness of humans. Know that Genesis is written in poetic language, and it's very hyperbolic. What our author is pointing out is the pain of the human experience. I don't think that this is anything that's foreign to most of us in this room. 
But what's really interesting is what comes in chapter or in verse 6, where it says that God had regretted making human beings. That word regretted in Hebrew is actually the same word that is used just three chapters earlier at the human fall, when God says that Eve would have pain in bringing forth children and that Adam would have pain in bringing forth harvest from the ground. You see, God feels the pain, the same kind of pain that fallen humanity feels. And as I read this, I started to realize that I'm not praying to a God who is apathetic to my situation. I'm not even praying to a God who's sympathetic to my situation. I am praying to a God who has stepped into human pain from the very beginning and knows exactly how I feel. And as I thought about this, I also started to think of human attachment. Now, if some of you are familiar with human attachment, it is a, a theory that looks at how we learn to bond with those closest to us in our childhood, and our attachment styles will follow us into our adulthood. Um, it's for our survival, it's for our thriving. In case you did not know, we need other people. I had a therapist who uh, simplified the idea of t attachment for me into a single question. And the question is this. If I call, will you come? That is what we ask those we are attached to. And as I considered this, I wondered, isn't that what I'm doing when I pray? Am I not asking God, if I call you, will you come? And then I reminded myself that I'm praying to my Father. I'm praying to the God who always shows up. I'm praying to the God who took on flesh as Jesus, who walked a mile in our shoes quite literally, and I'm also praying to the God who has showed up in my pain from the very beginning. And I started to realize the beauty of the gospel is absolutely that we will be delivered. But the beauty of the gospel is also found in the not yet. It's found in God with us. It's found in the reality that we are never alone and that God will always show up for us. And as I was going through my last year, there's a lot of ways that God showed up. For me, sometimes God showed up in the form of rainbows. So as he was speaking to me about the flood, I saw more rainbows last year than I've seen in my entire life. And every time I was reminded of the God who is with me. Sometimes God's presence wasn't as evident, but it showed up in the reality of my faith. It showed up in knowing that I'm praying to my Father. I'm not praying to Santa Claus or the sky fairies. I'm praying to the God who I know delivers his people and always shows up. Sometimes God showed up in miracles. At one point, my sister had been in the ICU, probably at this point, probably eight months, um, and she had no mobility in her left arm at all. Uh, and her, her staff had continued to tell us to continue to hope, continue to pray, 
Um, and we had done that. But on one particular day, they finally decided um, it was time to prepare us that they did not think Lindy was going to get mobility back in her left arm. And so that very day, on the day we gave up praying for a miracle, we walk in and my sister is raising her arms in bed. And she has full mobility. So sometimes God showed up in the miraculous. And more often than not, the way that God showed up was in the church. It was in the people who sat with us in the hospital. It was the people who texted us to check in or called us to check in. It was the people who sat in our grief with us. It was the people who knew what it meant to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the not yet. They knew how to be a healing presence to the world. So this morning, I think there's probably two groups of people in this room. I think there's probably a group of you who's praying for your own deliverance. To you, I would encourage you to keep praying. God does show up. He may not show up in the way that you expect, but God will always be with you. For another group of you, I think life's probably going pretty well. It might feel like it's unrelatable to feel disappointed by God. To you, I would ask this. How could you be the answer to somebody else's prayer in the not yet? How could you be the hands and feet of Jesus to somebody who so desperately needs a little piece of the kingdom on this side of heaven? I would call you, the church, to ask how you could be a healing presence. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for who you are. God, that you are the God who delivers. God, that you are our Father, that when we call, you will come. And God, I thank you for the church. Lord, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, even now, God, to show us the ways that we can step in to be your hands and feet in the world. Lord, that you would show us the places that you are calling us to be a healing presence. Amen.